This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Christy Green is the founder and principal of Radical, a landscape architecture firm based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Spelled like the name of that first intrepid root pushing its way out of a seed, Radical, the landscape architecture firm, embraces people and their stories, their lifestyles and the myriad ways they connect to place. Through innovative and ecologically regenerative design, Radical Landscape Design and Implementation weaves science with art, intuition with experience. Christy joins me to share more of her journey story. Christy, I'm so pleased to be speaking with you again. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm really excited to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. I would love to start out with what would your personal mission statement for your own gardening and garden design work be in the world right now, both personally and professionally? Christy? I think it's a great question. And it's funny because it's not a hard question for me. And it's been, uh, I would say, the my response and feeling around that question has been consistent. Um, at, at the very least, since I started my business in 1999 and, and since then, and it's um, generally speaking, my intention is to inspire reverence for and stewardship of the earth. Um, and I've been practicing different ways of of trying to inspire that in people. I, I guess in a nutshell, I, I would rather be in a position of catalyzing connection to place and stewardship of place. I, I, I would like for people to be in service to the earth instead of the other way around, (laughs) Um, instead of humans expecting the earth to be in service to them. Um, So that, 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 that I would say is sort of the underlying motivation behind all that I've been doing, which has taken many forms over the years. And we'll get into all of that, but maybe for right now, could you describe the basic facets of the work that you do under the name of Radical at this point? Sure. I'm a landscape architect, and so Radical is a landscape architecture firm, and so I practice um, design, build, uh, all kinds of projects in New Mexico and elsewhere. I've done projects in California as well, and we work on different scales and, and types of projects, including residential scale, which would be as small as you know, uh, a backyard, residential backyard. I'm doing a residential project right now that's on a 7,000 acre ranch and it's for a, a large scale um, house that's being constructed. And so that the process of that project has taken, I don't know, a couple of years in terms of the visioning, the designing, and now we're in the um, installation phase. Um, I like to work on larger scale ranch and agricultural type projects where we're looking at whole system design so um, in a nutshell, I am a landscape architect, and, and so I do all kinds of landscape architecture projects, but the ones I'm most interested in look at um, whole systems and look at soil, water, um, wildlife habitat, and food, those types of systems and their relationship to the cultural system of the place. So how are all of those, you know, quote, natural systems um, relating to the humans and, and how they are in that place? We will really dive into exploring what that means and looks like on the ground um, as we get deeper into the conversation. But I think that gives people a good sense of the perspective and philosophy you bring to your work. And so before we go further forward, I would love to go back a little bit and have you share a little bit about where you were born and raised and and who the people and places and plants were that grew you into a person for whom that philosophy would uh, inform all of your design work at this point? Well, I was, um, I was born in Georgia, although I have, I don't really have any relationship to that place. My father was in the army and so we were just stationed there for a short while. So I think I lived the first six months of my life there and then both of my both of my 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 father's from southeast New Mexico. My mother's from West Texas, the Panhandle, Texas, and so they kind of come from the same region. 
and he was also in the military in Texas. And so when we were, when I was three, we left Texas, he was stationed at another base and we left Texas and drove to Alaska. He had his choice between um, being stationed in Hawaii or being stationed in Alaska. And my father was um, an avid hunter and fisherman. So he chose Alaska and we packed up the camper and, and drove. And that was 1973. I was born in 1970. And so at that time, the drive to Alaska was um, kind of more rough and scary even than it is now. You know, the, it wasn't paved through Canada. So anyway, I was I grew up in Alaska. And then what happened was a lot of the times my brother and I, my older brother and I would be, um, we'd fly down to Texas to spend summers on my grandfather's farm in the Panhandle. My grandfather was a a wheat farmer and a cattle rancher. So I sort of grew up between these places of, of extremes. You know, Alaska is wild in a different way than the Texas panel and yeah. and the geography, the terrain, the topography, the water situation, everything is so completely different, you know, mountains and water in Alaska and yeah. the, and the and the big wildlife up there. I mean, we lived where, you know, one day I was home um, sick from school and that day I counted seven moose in the yard. You know, it was just a part of my upbringing that we lived where there were those types of animals and that type of landscape that was um, not controlled. In fact, I remember the feeling, and of course, in hindsight, you know, it's a different perspective and maybe even different words than I would have used growing up. But I remember having a very clear sense of fear of my surroundings and that I was not only not in control, but I was at the mercy of everything around me. So, for example, even if we went up to Flat Top Mountain, which is, you know, right there on the um, within Anchorage, you know, on the Chugach State Park and the mountains right there in the Alaska Range, I never took it for granted that I was going to be safe or that it wasn't going to be pleasant or that I was even going to make it home. You know, I just never knew. And then even one day in fifth grade, I remember the loudspeaker, the principal coming on saying, you know, just so you kids um, off of Feral Creek Road know there's a black bear. So watch out on your way home. <laughs> so it was just, <laughs> and we grew up there. It's, it's just part of it. And then the same was true in Texas, I would say. I mean, it's a place of pretty harsh nature. Um, you know, we would fly down and land in Amarillo to be 114 degrees and the wind would be howling out of the south. And there's my grandfather trying to make a go of it as a dryland farmer. Um, not easy. And and I guess I never had any sense that any form of nature, where it was the agricultural form in terms of the soil on the Algala Aquifer in Texas or the vegetated or wildlife surroundings in Alaska, I never had the a sense that any of that was there for my sake. <laughs> <laughs> it was there for to serve me. I mean, it happened to be an extra perk if we could go pick raspberries or if we caught salmon and that all kind of worked out without incident. That was a bonus, but it was never assumed that that was um, supposed to be in any way there for me to take from or be um, in control of. We did have a, a garden at our house in Alaska you know, we grew giant broccoli and cauliflower and strawberries and things like that. And like I said, the moose would come and go. We never fenced anything off or never tried to make it so that they couldn't have access to what they wanted. It was just sort of part of life. Like, oh, they're going to come eat whatever's green that's under the eaves closest to the house. It's not covered in snow. And and that's our place here, which is with them. And we didn't try to tame any of the the landscape around us, you know, the spruce trees, the alder, whatever was growing. We only had one acre where I grew up, but it wasn't, I don't remember any form of regulating what was around us. So partly what I'm hearing, I think, is that this is an insight that came to you later in life when you realized there was a different way of looking at and calibrating the relationship between a human and a landscape. And I'm also think I'm hearing that you lived with adults who did not inculcate that that mindset in you. So your your parents somehow did not model that that is what the land was for. Yeah, I think that's that's accurate. I don't I mean my mom, you know, we would plant annuals or we plant gladioles and things in our planting bag. So there was a relationship in this desire for something cultivated and beautiful. 
so it wasn't just like we watched everything outside like and let it just happen as it was and didn't have any kind of planting or imposition of our own selves but I but I never I never I don't recall now I don't know what actually happened but I've never had this conversation with but I don't recall anybody ever saying um or, or having any position of assumption that any of that quote natural world was supposed to please us <laughs> aesthetically yeah right which I just think is is interesting you know, I think that those languages we pick up in the way people are with land, whether they articulate it or not, like that gets transmitted to us as young people. As you grow up and move into your own adulthood, where do you go? And, and how do you move along your path towards becoming a landscape architect? Mm-hmm. I went to undergrad at uh, UC Berkeley, and I was a history major. And and my focus, you know, my thesis was on the myth of the last frontier of Alaska. I mean, I was always, Alaska was always home, the landscape, the identity of the place. And I was always interested in land and people and how each influence influences the other. Uh, and so that's what I did when I was in college. And every summer while I was in school at UC Berkeley, I'd go home to Alaska and I'd work. I worked on the Valdez oil spill one year. One year I worked on the Alaska Railroad in Nanana, which is south of Fairbanks. Two years, I worked at a hunting and fishing lodge along the Stony River, which is a very remote part of Alaska, west of the Alaska Range. So I was always going back home and inserting myself in these extreme experiences of place. I never wanted a regular job. I never wanted a regular um, surrounding. And I was always fascinated by these characters that I was surrounded by who chose a very uncomfortable way of life (laughs) in a very uncomfortable place. Um, And so I would spend my time there and then also visiting my family in Texas, um, again, inserting myself in discomfort. You know, we'd drive the tractor for like 14 hours a day, 114 degree temperature or whatever. And the wind is howling. There was no air conditioner in the tractors during those days. And it was something that we wanted to be a part of, which was, placemaking and making a, 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 a livelihood with my grandfather, with that part of my family. So when I finished college in 1993 at Berkeley, I didn't really know what to do. What are you supposed to do with a degree in history? <laughs> um, and, you know, and long story short, I ended up working at Stanford for a while because of a connection I had made to the hunting lodge in Alaska. There was a person there I met. I worked at Stanford for a few years. And then my boyfriend at the time moved to Santa Fe. So I came to Santa Fe in 1998 with him, really ready to leave California. My mother lives in California now, and there's so many great things about California, but I always felt like a place, it was a place that was too easy and it was too paved for me. I could not find any sort of bearing in California. And so coming to Santa Fe, you know, it was somewhere between the Panhandle of Texas and Alaska in terms of connection to place through seasonal cycles, food mountains, wildlife, water, um, people live in close connection to place here in Santa Fe. And I ended up working for um, the Bioneers for one year. And I was um, the coordinator for the Restorative Development Initiative, which was all about farming and food. And um, I learned so much about uh, where we are with industrial monocrop agriculture. Mm-hmm. We were trying to connect small local farmers to new markets like farmers in the south instead of growing peanuts and watermelons we were trying to help them learn how to grow medicinal herbs and then connecting them with markets in the pacific northwest and things like that so it was this really deep infusion of um, experience and education around food and water and place and so it was sort of like oh instead of facilitating these kinds of workshops or this conference i actually want to do it right i want to be the one doing this type of work on the ground so I quit my job and October 1st, 1999, I said, I'm starting this business and this business is going to be growing organic heirloom food in people's backyards because what I want to do, what I believe is true is our deepest connection to each other and to place is through the most intimate act of eating and through food. Yeah, yeah. It it makes me laugh now because it was so naive. (laughs) Well, but there is some beauty. There is some beauty in naivete that is uh, not to be underestimated. So 
maybe just describe what Bioneers was at that time. I think it was pretty much the same that it is now, but it's a fantastic uh, endeavor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bioneers was founded by uh, Kenny Osbell and Nina Simons, and they're located here in Santa Fe, and they do their annual conference out in uh, San Rafael, California. And what they do is basically bring together leaders and visionaries from all over the world who are doing the most um, radical um, systems change, thinking change, whether it has to do with permaculture, indigenous knowledge, farming and agriculture, um, social justice, environmental justice. And they have, I think it's like a three-day conference now with plenary speakers and then breakout workshops and all these different sort of centers of, of thought and practice. So they're sort of, I think, what I would call a collective of visionaries. And they're showing examples of positive change. Uh, specifically trying to reconnect people with these whole systems of the planet. And they've always been multimedia, which is, I think, they were ahead of the curve of, you know, podcasts or, or documentaries around these concepts. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I remember sitting at my very first plenary um talk and I was in the audience and I and I just remember having this overwhelming bursting feeling from inside and I said that's what I want to do I just I want to be somebody who's inspiring this kind of feeling change the uh, internal change of heart and then also practical action of making change and the person actually who inspired me in the moment was Bob Kennard and he's oh I'm gonna get emotional <laughs> sorry <laughs> but um no no he's that farmer in Sonoma and he's the one who was growing all the food for Chez Panisse at the time and he was growing the vegetables for Odwalla and we would do workshops with him and I remember one of his workshops I was at after the Bioneers conference that year and I remember practically just you know dropping to my knees and being so moved by his relationship to the soil and to the food and to the aliveness of that connection, what we put into our bodies and how we share it. I mean, he didn't even have a refrigerator. He called those food coffins. Every day he would harvest whatever from the ground that he was going to eat. And he might go and buy olive oil or he might buy a carton of milk, but the rest of it was what he grew. And I just thought, that's what I want to do. I want to do what he's doing. And I want to try to catalyze that type of feeling in others. And so then I started the business of, you know, edible gardens in Santa Fe, New Mexico, not because I was trying to give anybody what I thought or understood them to want from like a, you know, call it a like living grocery store outside your own, own house. It wasn't about people's convenience at all. It was about trying to educate and inspire in everyday people in their everyday home, like the sanctuary of home, what it means to do something about food and soil and water in place and also as direct protest to monocrop agriculture. So it was the way for me to be the most directly um, active in, in protest to like Monsanto and, and the large seed companies. So that's what I started to do. And I just you know, basically rolled up my sleeves with one of my good friends and we started to do that. And, and it was against all advice. Everybody locally said, don't do it. It's going to take too much water. No one's ever going to want to pay for that. And, and we did it anyway. This is Cultivating Place. Christy Green is the founder and principal of Radical, a landscape architecture firm based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We'll be right back for more with Christy. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. In my work researching, interviewing, and writing under Western skies, I was often cracked wide open as a gardener. Interviewing and researching Christy Green was one of those experiences. I love this excerpt from her profile in Under Western Skies. Quote, Christy Green has never considered landscapes as something that could be made to serve her wishes, but rather as rugged personalities of their own. She acknowledges, okay, land, you were here first. This is your shape and these are your ways. How do I concede to you? And Christy uses that word concede purposefully 
to highlight a sense that the land and nature set the rules, that we may learn from adapting to the land. Quote, we are the only species who demands in the most arrogant of ways that the land accommodate and adapt to our comfort zones, she says. I don't think it's our place in the whole scheme of things, especially aesthetically. Christy starts her design process with the question, what is best for the land? We're back now to our conversation with landscape architect Christy Green, founder of Radical, a landscape architecture firm based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. After Christy worked for several years designing and installing residential edible gardens, specific to people's tastes and to the land on which they were living, in order to forge deeper connections between all of them, Christy realized that most people needed and wanted even fuller landscape design help, and she wanted even more skills to more fully integrate ecological whole systems thinking into larger scale work. She applied to the landscape architecture program at the University of New Mexico. As we come back, she picks up the story from there. It's a three-year master of landscape architecture program uh, in the School of Architecture and Planning. It took me four years because I, I had to, I was still working full-time and my daughter at the time was only five. So I'd drive to Albuquerque three days a week and then, you know, have the crew working here in Santa Fe and then and then by the time I put Olivia to bed at night, that's when I would start my schoolwork. And so, yeah, I'm, I don't regret that at all. It was a really big catapult, I would say, into the next phase of my career and how I express landscape. Mm-hmm. And, and tell us about that step up. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was fascinating when I was in, in school because in studio in particular, not all, but most of the students were quite a bit younger than me. I was 40 when I went back. And um, most of the students were, were younger and didn't have the practical experience that I had had on the ground. So nobody had ever um, built anything that they had designed. And some of the instructors had done installation work, but a lot of them were academicians. And so a lot was um, pure theory, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I found that when I went to school, I thought, oh, here's where I can use my imagination and do whatever the hell I want and make it look really cool on paper. Um, I happen to have had the practical understanding of how things actually get built on the ground because everything I ever designed was built. I knew from my own hands how to do it. And so I think that was both um, an asset and a little bit of a liability at school because I kept wanting the theory and application to be integrated at school. And I found what came to me explicitly and through experience there was they were very much about theory. And it was frustrating because there was a, a disconnect with how things actually work on the ground. There was not much respect for people who were design builders on the ground. It was more about theory and, you know, we're, we're architects here. And, we, and also what was very explicit there, especially when it came to my master's thesis, is um, they did at that time, this isn't true now, but at that time, what was the focus of that program was urban landscape architecture. So it was said to me, you know, we design for urban landscapes like parks and so on, public spaces. And I said, well, I don't believe that that's, I think landscape architecture is much bigger than that. And I believe what we need in the world is a connection between rural and urban. I mean, quite literally, because if urban dwellers think that um, the light that they get, the water and the food that they get is, is just a matter of turning a switch, then there's something really wrong with how we understand connection um, that's beyond, you know, political boundaries. So um, I, I was really interested in eco-regional scale design and uh, rural rural design, you know, especially obviously farming and oil and gas, water extraction, all those um, types of larger landscapes. Those are what I'm more interested in. And so when I left the school, I, I, I rebranded my business and called it Radical, which is, as you know, the botanical radical, which is the first um, root that comes after a seed has germinated. So what I was trying to bring forward in my own practice and explicitly in in landscape architecture is what is rooted and also what is new, what's old and what's new. And I started to do these, um, in a way I was having fun for my own sake because I was bored with just plain old 
landscape design build, but I also knew I couldn't just be a, a theoretical practitioner. You know, I didn't want to just buy the idea of landscape architecture as they were proposing, you know, at the school and elsewhere. And also I think the profession takes itself really too seriously a lot of the time. So I started just poking fun at it. I just said, all right, I don't fit in, in one or the other sort of ways of thinking around landscape. And so I'm going to do what I want. And I, and I opened up this warehouse shop, tore out the concrete out front, and I just started doing these kind of whimsical landscape installation pieces, poking a little bit of fun at the profession and also trying to invite participation into these deeper questions about what is nature? What is the human place in nature? What is our relationship to place? Um, and that's when I did this um, kind of educational series on consumption and waste that was that radical at the at the at the studio space. And so I think without the schooling, I wouldn't have pushed myself into this new phase, and also wouldn't have appreciated where I came from in terms of the value of the rootedness, you know, of the old. There's something about, and I want you to describe them a lot more um, tangibly these exhibits that you started to put together at Radical, the, the the space that was Radical, are humorous. So they are kind of poking fun, but they are also leveraging humor to get people into these some of these larger questions. And so maybe describe one or two of these exhibits. Mm-hmm. Well, also, I just want to say one thing, which is really an important, another important ingredient is right around the time I started it to grad school is when I started to hunt myself. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why it sort of dawned on me like, oh, wait, I grew up with hunters, but the girls were never invited to go hunting. It was not anything that the women or, or, or girls did. And I said, well, you know, I, if I'm the one who's talking about food and connection to local food and cultivating food and relationship to place, why wouldn't I want to try to source my meat that way? I am an omnivore. And so I started hunting um, all over New Mexico and that completely changed my relationship to my design practice, to my conversations with my clients, to what I was doing at Radical. So for me, when I had my hands in the body of an elk or a turkey and the warmth of that body, you know, sometimes up to my own shoulders and the blood on my fingers and bringing that animal um, on my back to the pickup to bring home and then put on the countertop where my daughter is, you know, and seeing, you know, literally cutting from the bone what we were going to eat that night. I realized, oh, where we are in place in our relationship to nature, I just can't even stand that there's any concept of us being separate, is so much more vivid and also includes these animals. This is their home. And these ecoregions are theirs and how they relate to vegetation and water in place. What can I learn from them? And so I did include, you know, every time we would have an opening at Radical, I would cook elk or deer or whatever I had hunted and offer it to people and maybe tell a little bit of a story of where that meat had come from. But also seeing those bodies of those animals, I mean, I'm looking right at them when I'm pulling the trigger. There's a there's something that happens when you're close to to that source of food that is a living being and you consciously decide to kill it really (laughs) and then facilitate that transition to death and then take that into my own body I realized oh what I feel is that my human body is also animal body and it's very much an expression of this landscape I'm taking these animals these plants into my body and so of course you know the expression you are what you eat was very literally what Um, was this epiphany for me at the time. And so I thought I cannot be this liaison between people and place in a way that it, that in any way compromises or sacrifices the health of these plants, animals, water, soil. I, I actually need to be in service to them before I'm in service to people. Right. <laughs> and so, for example, I thought, well, if my body, what is it that we ask of you know, women's bodies, girls' bodies, you know, it's the same idea of perfection that we ask of the landscape. We want pretty blossoms all the time. We don't want to have to maintain them too much. We want, you know, perky breasts and so on. And so one of the um, installations was called Death of an Ideal. And that's when I cleared the ground in front of Radical and made this perfectly manicured sterile soil with these mounds that were, you know, again, they were symbolic of the perfect breast and then I took these Barbie dolls and stood them on top of the perfect breast as if they were these cheerleaders you know trying to keep themselves 
pumped up in um, position for what is beautiful, like the embodiment of what is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then I made these many graves in front of each of the mounds that was in some way inviting them to go ahead and let go and, (laughs) you know, um, put to death this idea of what is perfect in terms of a perfect, perfectly manicured landscape, perfectly manicured body, and all of the effort that goes into perpetuating that ideal it's exhausting and it's not sustainable and also what is really beautiful is it something on the exterior like that you know what landscapes are the most beautiful right this um you know the the vividness of of the the hunting experiences and the direct choice that you have to kill something in order to eat something. And, and this is true of, of any vegetable matter we eat as well. We just, it's not as vivid as it is when you choose to take a a mammal or a bird and that epiphany for you, that sort of full circle of, of every garden I make is actually in relationship for good or bad with what, this meat is, what this animal lives in, what these, um, you know, what the quality of my water is and, and what the aesthetic quality of, of my world is. And I think that full circle connection, you know, directly informs and, and is the radical for your whole systems thinking that you then take into the best possible extent you can every landscape you work on. Well, I, I sure try to bring that. <laughs> I at least feel like it's my responsibility to to have the conversation to, and to ask the questions. Yeah. And most of the time now, you know, I've been in business for what twenty two years now, and I'm much better at saying no. I'm much better at getting a sense of you know where there's going to be a good fit. Who wants to work with someone like me? Because not that not not so many people do. Although I have to say, as you know, edibles are much more popular than they were back in 1998 when I started, and also this understanding of relationship to um, whole systems, you know, wildlife, habitat, water, and so on. There's much more of a vocabulary and awareness around these things now, thank goodness. So it is easier to attract those kinds of clients and to do that kind of work. And I'm I'm much more interested in fewer projects that are larger scale and longer, um, longer duration, you know, that take place over multiple years. So then I'm actually building a relationship with the place and the people. We're not just doing a, a one-off installation and then we're on our way to the next one. I just, it doesn't work for me. And I don't think it, it, it may work for other people. And maybe you could say that those things that we've done, which I can't even count how many times we've done those kinds of projects. I don't know going back, like, are those successful? Yes, we did something beautiful. Maybe we did something that people engage with and are happy about. Maybe we're growing food. Maybe we're creating habitat and and, uh, birds are coming or hummingbirds or whatever. Maybe we built soil. We've controlled the erosion. I think, I hope that's true in most of the places. But um, I guess for me going forward, I I just want a deeper um, practice and a deeper conversation. This is Cultivating Place. Christy Green is the founder and principal of Radical, a landscape architecture firm based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We'll be right back for more with Christy on what being truly radical in our expressions of landscape include and what they mean to her. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, this statement by Christy late in our conversation is worthy of a post-it note, a skywriter, or a message from the universe you tuck away for later. Our lives are not about being comfortable. They are about being meaningful. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to say that again slowly, just for us, the gardeners. Our garden lives are not about being comfortable. They are about being meaningful. We know this as gardeners, right? We live this. And this ability to hold meaning over comfort is perhaps among our greatest strengths, our fortitudes and our aptitudes as gardeners in this world.
We're back now to our conversation with landscape architect Christy Green. Her home garden and her award-winning design at Santa Fe's Academy for the Love of Learning is featured in the new book, Under Western Skies, Visionary Gardens from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Coast, published on May 11th by Timber Press. As we come back, Christy shares more about her specific process with a current client. Well, um, one of the projects I'm working on now is about an hour east of Santa Fe. It's on a, a ranch and um, the builder who did the design and doing the construction of one of the guest houses on the property called me and said, you know, I realize we need a landscape architect for this. There's an extreme cut where we did the, the foundation for this new house and I don't really know how to handle it and we need uh, an architect's um, design sense, you know. And so when I went, of course, that can it's really hard for me just to look at the boundary of the so-called project. So I did go ahead and do a design for that around that guest house and worked with the client and with the, the builder and everybody for quite a number of months to come up with what was going to function in terms of erosion control and what would be um, of the place aesthetically. We we sourced a lot of materials right there um, at the ranch, but they're also right on the Pecos River. I mean, literally you can look down from this guest house and see the river and so I was very interested in the habitat the the wildlife that are there and also how these people live there and um, they have kids and grandkids that come to visit and they are very much a part of all of these outdoor spaces so I was trying to create connection between this new structure and the existing structures and also the place and so when I got asked to basically address this one cut um, in the conceptual design, I said, well, could we also consider something that might be a walk and an experience through the landscape, through a drainage, and to this um, slope that overlooks the river, so that there's that experience um, in moving through the land and that different topography, and then also having this view down to the river, and then also what's the relationship to the other structures, so there's this other house that's close by, and what the landscape was around that house was really quite physically and visually divisive. It was disconnected from the new house. And so I just made some suggestions on on paper about how we might create visual and um, experiential connection among these elements. And, you know, I have to say little by little, I, I didn't feel like I was trying to convince anybody. I was just saying, hey, this is kind of how I see it. And what do you think of this? You know, I didn't I'm not going to be the one who lives there, but uh, I just wanted to have the experience be more fluid and participatory. I guess I always want that. And just so happened, you know, both the contractor and the landowner, you know, they they were really open and amenable. And it almost felt like, and sometimes this is true, I feel like sometimes the people I work with don't necessarily have the confidence or the language themselves to express what they're feeling on a deeper level. And I feel that that's true of this person I really enjoy working with her sometimes I'll say something and I feel like she really responds she hasn't been working as a landscape design person for 22 years you know I have these conversations all the time it's more on the tip of my tongue whereas I think for a lot of people it's in their body or in their bellies in their something deeper that they're wanting a connection but not quite knowing how to articulate and certainly not knowing how to activate in in space and material but they know it when they feel it right they were they yeah yeah and then of course for me it's about building trust you know because I'm never going to come to a place and say we should do this this and this and have that be about something that I'm going to earn in terms of dollars because I know that won't work that's not what I'm interested in and most of the time I'm trying to talk people out of spending money (laughs) you know going back to where my grandfather and my family comes from I mean we'd never spend $5,000 $5,000 on a boulder, you know, it's just, so <laughs> my inclination is always the least expensive landscape. Um, and what can we do with the resources we have on site? And how do we also work with the land? And that's, mm-hmm. that's critical too, because we, we don't know. I think it's hugely arrogant as humans to come in and say, I bought this land. These are my boundaries. This is what I want it to look like. This is where I want the view to be perfect. This is how I want to entertain when I want to entertain. And I need this place to serve me, even though I've only been a part of it for what, a couple of months. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just think that the arrogance around that, it, it, it's really part of what's gotten us into so much trouble in terms of asking too much of water, soil, plants, animals, you know, the sort of on-demand culture of 
it's supposed to serve me when I want and however much I want for my own comfort and pleasure. And when we can have a step back and say, actually, can we ask permission? Can we ask, how can I be here in the best way? Actually, imagine asking, you know, what is it that I can give to this place instead of what can I take? And even if we were took a different approach, like some of my clients thankfully have been willing to do, where they, I say, what if we just do nothing for a year but build soil? We're not going to do anything. Maybe we'll do some playing with design ideas on paper. And some of the most successful projects, including what we did at the Academy for the Love of Learning, involved stepping back, observing, taking time, and then doing iterative kind of um, installations over time. Like one of my favorite projects, we we did the installation over a 10-year period, and that was only a two-acre property. That client was willing right. to wait for a year. All we did was build soil for one year. And to me, that also allows the person to, I guess, the option of repositioning him or herself in a greater, um, different proportion, yeah. <laughs> a different proportion yes. in terms of, of importance and also actual physical space. You know, how much space and resources do you think each of us should be able to demand <laughs> you know really what is our place in the world so I think that time and that place of observer and a person asking questions is I think it helps make for a different experience of the place and also a different process of design build and you know outcome if you can even say there's such a thing because it's continually changing right. And I think that illustration pulls us beautifully into this conversation about convenience and comfort, because I think that that patience, impatience, that willingness to wait and actually know the space truly and, and find your appropriate and proportional, I think is a beautiful word, um, space in respect to this land that you might be with, whether it's your suburban backyard or, or your two acre, you know, farmette or, or your 7,000 acre ranch. And this has been a recurring theme in what you've, you've talked about, even as a child growing up is that you came to understand that discomfort wasn't a terrible thing, that it, it was an okay thing. And, um, convenience wasn't necessarily an objective. And can you articulate a little bit about the benefits, the, the blessings of, of this idea of discomfort or, um, or inconvenience that adds to your experience of, of a landscape or your life, Christy? <laughs> well, I don't know. I think that... <laughs> It's, uh, oh, I, you know, Alaska and West Texas are really hard places. Mm. And sometimes I think um, that imprint has been so strong. I'm not sure that it's, it served me in some ways, but even now today, you know, I live, I have a shared well. I, uh, I do harvest water. I have gray water and passive water harvesting systems off the roof, but um I have potable water to irrigate if I need it. But every day I have, you know, like these, the dish pans in the sink. And I don't know how many times a day those fill up when I'm doing dishes or whatever else. And I take them out to whichever part of the garden needs watering. And I, it's one of those things I just can't not do. It's, it's really hard for me to pour water down the drain. That's something that is embodied, has become embodied. The same is true. It's really hard for me to go to the store. I don't think I would ever go buy a kumquat. I don't even know what that where it comes from, like I feel the discomfort from me, and this is only thing for me, I think that's all I can do is I would rather not have tomatoes except the ones that are that happen to make it in my garden during that growing season. I don't really want to eat store-bought meat. I don't I don't feel good about picking something that's um, in an anonymous case in styrofoam with plastic. I don't care where it's from. And coming home and eating it, I do do that occasionally. You know, I just bought fish from Alaska the other day. So I do make those choices. But the discomfort of trying to source those things that mean the most to me and how I include them in my lifestyle, you know, and in my body. So to bring home an elk and crawl up on the counter and skin that elk and feel his ribs and his skull 
and like I said, you know, put him in the skillet that night for supper, I would rather do that and have that experience than go to the store and load my grocery bags with with meat. And and for me it's I think it's all it's just about, I guess what I've always had is this hunger, even going back to what my thesis was and at UC Berkeley, you know, what is the relationship between people and place and how do each shape the identity and the experience. And I feel like it's not about, for me, um, daily life isn't necessarily about being comfortable. It's about being meaningful. And that's not to say you can't have any kind of comfort. I mean, I have heating in my house. I have all these things. I have comfortable clothing, whatever, but I don't expect it. (laughs) I don't expect it. I don't expect to be, you know, 72 degrees all the time and have whatever I need at my fingertips. I just don't. And I don't think for me, if I did have all that, I don't think that I would appreciate it in the same way. And the precariousness of all of that, if anything we've learned over this last year is we can't take anything for granted, (laughs) you know? And, and when we don't take them for granted, and we have to either wait for them or work for them or and we get the the texture and the personality of exactly where they came from or what it took for mm-hmm. us to grow them i think one reminds us of how precious and mm-hmm. valuable they are and how precarious life is and it also i think remind like underscores that we are mm-hmm. alive and that that mm-hmm. is remarkable. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And there is something about this convenience and comfort that we have, you know, over the last 150 years perfected to the point of protecting us so much that we aren't actually, we don't feel alive. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and there's all these other ways that I think we try to feel alive. And there, there are ways that have to do with, you know, what I call expedited excess. You know, you push a button, you can get anything delivered yeah. to your door that's beautiful, entertaining, you name it. And that's that's a new, different lifestyle that creates, um, exacerbates, I'll say, disconnect. And I think the fundamental, fundam- yeah. fundamental disconnect is the source of soul suffering and malaise culturally, physically, socially. I don't think that... I think if we as individuals and as a culture actually feel in a visceral embodied way that we are a part of the whole, if we do not see separation between us and the peach tree or the elk or the, even the rat, whatever the so-called bad guy is, if, if we can't see separation or difference or otherness, I don't think that we can abuse in the way that we do. I think only when we see ourselves as separate, are we able to, um, make toxic or harm or take from in these ways that are so annihilating. I think both to whatever that external thing is, whether it's the aquifer, um, fossil fuels, taking of, of animals and like industrial um, agriculture and, and, and meat production. I think that's all based on fundamental disconnect and, and thinking of ourselves as something separate from I mean, I'm not a psychologist or philosopher. It's just the way I feel is true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when you see people eat real food or come to life around real food or a real connection, I mean, how many posts, Facebook posts do you see or social media posts are about, look at where I am in nature or look what I ate today or look who, what family I'm with. I think more so than like, look at my shiny new watch or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> right. I think so. And and this is where I find such great hope in the garden mm-hmm. itself. I mean, not everybody is going to have the radical, for lack of a better word, um, you know, positions that, that you have come to cultivate and nurture in your life. I'm, I'm just going to assume that's mm-hmm. the truth. And um, But every step we take in our own gardens, I mean, to, to recognize that the flower we planted fed this caterpillar, which grew this butterfly and which gave us great delight on a Tuesday afternoon, or that this seed head that we let go brought in this bird, which, you know, like when we see those things in our garden, it is not, it is a very 
uh, related sensation to what you described of recognizing the life force of that elk that you killed and then ate and was reverent, were reverent for. Like that puts us in a connection that moves us in the right direction, I think. And I think our, our gardens, whether it's a, a windowsill pot or, or a big fancy space, like they provide us with some of the best opportunity mm-hmm. to put ourselves back in this relationship in proportion. Mm-hmm. I do too. I think it can be as simple as, you know, take your shoes and socks off and put your feet on the ground. And I think you're right. I think it's true regardless of the scale or place. I mean, you could be in a, you know, hundred story apartment building somewhere and have a relationship to something that's, that's not human outside that's going to be generative and healing. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Christy. It's been a great adventure to speak to you. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate your inquiry and I appreciate your participation and and, uh, I'm really eager to get my hands on your new book under Western Skies, Jennifer. Christy Green is the founder and principal of Radical, a landscape architecture firm based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Radical, spelled like the name of that first intrepid root pushing its way out of a seed, embraces people and their stories, their lifestyles, and the myriad ways they connect to place. Through innovative and ecologically regenerative design, Radical landscape design and implementation weaves science with art, intuition with experience. Join us again next week when we focus on creating more garden joy and fun by facing some of our garden fears. Yep, we all have them. Portland-based Lori Bull, also known as The Danger Garden, joins us to talk about all things fearless gardening, on being bold, breaking the rules, and growing what you love. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, and the podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at cultivatingplace.com. Make sure to check out this week's podcast show notes under the podcast tab there at cultivatingplace.com to read and see more about Christy Green's radical garden work. You're going to love it. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you always hear the full garden story and you never miss a weekly episode. We never stop growing. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.